Father God, you are our living hope. This evening, we look to you, your Holy Spirit, to strengthen us in our weakness and even in our weakness. Lord, we remember that your power is made perfect through our weakness. And as Paul says, uh, therefore, we will delight in our weaknesses and our insults and our problems and our infirmities because when we're weak you are strong through us and in us so father we pray that you'd strengthen us as we look to psalm 25 as david's plea for protection and uh, so many other things that he needs from you lord and his need is our need as well speak to our hearts we pray in jesus name Amen. God bless you as you take your seat this evening. Great turnout. Good to see you all. Psalm 25, you heard in the prayer, so you know where we're going to be as uh, we go through some of the Psalms this summer. Psalm 25 is an acrostic prayer, acrostic, uh, uh, like nine other uh, Psalms in the Bible. Acrostic meaning that the first letter of that first verse starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then uh, following through those verses, uh, it goes down in descending order, uh, kind of following the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, commentators suggest that it gives the psalm a feeling like it covers the A to Z on the particular theme of that psalm. And so in Psalm 25, the theme is needing God's help in a variety of ways. And so uh, David is asking God to take care of him through many ups and downs and the twists and turns in life. He's saying, be my help, O Lord, from A to Z. Everything I need, I look to thee. And so yeah, like the chorus we sing, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. And sometimes we don't realize that uh, as often as we should. We kind of become a little self-reliant, but the Lord has a way of waking us up from that and letting us know that we do indeed need him every moment of the day. And so David's older now when he's writing this psalm, and he understands his desperate need better than ever. You know, he's got some life experience uh, now, having aged. I mean, there's not a whole lot of perks about getting older, uh, but one of them is realizing how truly desperate we are for God's mercy. So let's get to it. Psalm 25, we're just going to walk through uh, the paragraphs one through three. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Verses 1 through 3. Okay, here we go. So there are five paragraphs to this psalm. So five cries for help to the Lord his God and our God. So we're going to take them one at a time. So paragraph one, note takers of prayer for protection. Nothing new here. Please help me, God. Uh, not everyone likes me. There are bad guys out there. Uh, I need your intervention. Now, 
like most of the 75 Psalms that King David uh, writes by the power of the Holy Spirit. That means David wrote half of the Psalms, right? Since there's 150 of them. Uh, Usually he's facing trouble. Uh, Usually uh, a threat of some kind or conflict or he's depressed about something or disillusioned, which I kind of find sort of encouraging uh, because uh, even though he's a Bible hero and a man after God's own heart, he's got a lot of problems. Uh, but here's the deal. He may have a lot of need, dilemmas and challenges, fears and concerns. Disgruntled people uh, want to do him in, but he's got one really good thing going for him. He knows where to go in time of trouble. And uh, to you, O Lord, there it is in verses 1 and 2. I lift up my soul, it's you. And by implication, really, the Hebrews sing, it's you and you alone that I trust. And so when the storm winds begin to blow, God's people know where to go, or at least they should, because it's pretty dumb to sit outside in a storm when there's a house warm and dry where you could be safe. And so... Yeah, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous, those who are right with God, run into that tower and are safe. Uh, Proverbs 18 and verse 10. So uh, one writer said, there's a wonderful piece about giving up the responsibility and the the responsibility for your own well-being back into the capable hands of the God who gave your life in the first place. I love Psalm 100. It's five verses. Psalm 100 says, know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us and we are his You know, so I always think of my concerns and are his responsibilities since I don't even own my own life. We belong to God. We're God's responsibility. And he says, if I'm your shepherd, then how would you be lacking any good thing? You know, the Lord. So he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. I look to you, not my royal advisors or my counselors or the sages or the royal treasury, not my natural skill as a warrior, not my own ingenuity, creativity, or strength uh, as a man. It's not by man's might, nor by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4 and 6. Uh, To you and you only, my God, from whence comes my help, Psalm 122. Uh, calls our attention to that. Not my doctor, not my lawyer, uh, not my friends, not my spouse. I look higher than the mountains, past the hills, to heaven. King David will say in another psalm, Psalm 20, uh, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so, you know, David's learned a valuable lesson in life, and he's passed it down to his son, obviously, because King Solomon writes in, in, uh, there, uh, unle- uh, well, he, he has a similar thing, uh, a similar proverb, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, good luck with that, because the watchman uh, stays awake in vain unless it's God's blessing on top of our efforts. That's the point. We're called to do our part, right? But we look to God, because if his blessing isn't on what we're trying to get accomplished, it's all for naught. So speaking of the watchman, uh, the, the guards who stood watch over the city, uh, David needs the Lord to stand watch over his life. 
verses 2b and 3, let not my enemies triumph over me. Now, what? King David? He's got enemies? That's crazy. He's a good man. He's a man after God's own heart. God didn't say that about anybody else. A man has been used to do much good. You know, he wants to do things the right way. It's just hard to believe somebody like King David uh, could have enemies. Still people have it out for the guy. God blessed him. God gifted him. God placed him in leadership. He's a skilled warrior. He's a musician, singer, and he's a charismatic and popular leader. So God has blessed him, and that's part of the problem. Uh, As wonderful as all that is, uh, God's blessing can come with a little bit of a cost. Uh, Small-hearted, insecure people sometimes um, get jealous, envious, and resent those God is blessing. Uh, King Saul comes to mind, who chased David down for eight years like a madman. Uh, because Not because David did anything to deserve it, but because King Saul resented the blessing on David's life. Uh, yeah, or they get their noses bent out of shape, you know, and they go on the war path like so many Bible characters had to endure. As a leader, David has to choose some and not others. He has to make decisions that some applaud and some uh, find totally unacceptable and then get their feelings hurt or their pride and ego shaken and so they seek to retaliate. On top of this, the reason he has to ask for help with enemies is because he's a preacher. He's a Christian of sorts. He's a pre-Christian, if you want to call him that. And Acts uh, chapter 2 and verse 30 says that he's a prophet. He proclaimed God's word. He shared the gospel. And so that makes him a target, as it does any of you and myself who want to live for Christ and uh, bring his word to a dark world that's hostile toward him. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 says anybody who desires to please God, anybody, will eventually uh, be persecuted. And so uh, Jesus warns us clearly in John 15, look, if they didn't love me, they rejected me, they hated me, they're going to hate you too because you're doing and living and speaking the same way that I did. And look where it got me. And so, uh, in fact, he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And uh, somebody just texted me and said, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It it means if everybody (laughs) is in love with you in this world, how could you be shining a light? You're eventually with the gospel. You are going to, to offend some people because the gospel is offensive. Now, we don't do this unnecessarily in, a, in an unnecessarily obnoxious manner or, or we're being rude or insensitive or socially awkward. It's just enough that the gospel uh, has uh, enough offense in it to uh, cause people to to think that you're narrow-minded or that you hate people or cause to uh, reject you. And so that's what's going on there. Spent a little bit too much time, but that's what it is too. Uh, Adding insult to injury, verse three, it's without cause. 
you see. That's what really hurts. In Psalm 7, he says, Lord, I've got a lot of enemies. Now, and they're persecuting me. Now, if I'm guilty of, de- of, of doing something, if I've got blood on my hands, then go ahead and let them prevail. But if I've done something like somebody was good to me and I return evil for that, he goes, just let me lose. That's fine with me. Uh, the sting is that he's innocent. And so that's the painful irony is that David is innocent and the guys who are slandering him and after him and making other people not like David, they're the ones who are guilty of sinning. So he says, don't, when the haters are doing their thing, don't let them triumph uh, there in your verse. Uh, the word triumph in the Hebrew means to rejoice and to uh, take delight. And so uh, Notice that the scope of the prayer widens, and it's not just him anymore. He says, let none who hope in you suffer this kind of disgrace. Help everybody, help all believers who are dealing with hateful people to rise above. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, a redeeming feature of personal pain is the sympathy it brings for others that suffer in similar ways. And so, so he's saying, Nothing would make my critics happier than to hear of my humiliating downfall. Uh, They can't wait to post it all on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Please spare me that, you know. So please rob them of the twisted satisfaction and and deal with their treachery. The word treachery there means deceitfulness or disloyalty. Turn the tables on them and give them a taste of their own medicine. To you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Moving on, four through seven. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are God. You are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, plural, for they are from eternity past, is the word there. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Let's take a look at this. And so, note takers, now he moves from a prayer for protection to a prayer for guidance. Lead me in your ways in spite of my bad behavior. I've got an idea. Uh, We can make a lot of money, so pay attention here. Let's develop an app that can tell you what God's will is for everyday situations. Moment by moment, you just type into the app, you know, and then boom, God's perfect will appears. It comes up right there. I'll buy it. When I don't know about you, uh, you know your company's downsizing. What should you do? Perfect. Pull up the app. There's an app for that. You know, <laughs> you're graduating soon. Where do I go? Uh, I'd like to find a wife or a husband. I always look over here because it's, <laughs> and I nailed it too when I looked over there. Yeah, just take out the app, right? And just tell you what to do. Doors open up. Which ones do I walk through? A door closes. Now what do I do? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead and guide me. There's like four or five verbs there of saying, of admitting, God, I don't have all the answers. I have limited vision, you see. So life can come at us at a 
thousand different angles and expect a thousand different responses uh, right there as an option. Uh, and what do we know? Honestly, none of us have a clue what's going to happen tonight. None of us. You may think it's just going to be a regular night. No. You don't know what's going to happen in traffic. You don't know what you're going to eat when you get home. You don't know anything. Neither do I. You know, we just kind of think we do, and it kind of has a, a rhythm. But we all know how fragile life is and how many times you get a phone call or a text or an email that changes everything. Or somebody will say something and do something out of the blue and it'll cause an argument tonight. It won't be me now that I said that. I'm going to be on my best behavior, you know. But you just don't know about life. Uh, James, I love this. He warns the overly confident and spiritually arrogant uh, professing believer. James chapter 4. Now listen up, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We're going to spend a year here and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while, then it vanishes. Poof, you're gone. Instead, you ought to say, let's figure out what the Lord wants, what God's will is for this or that. James chapter 4, 13 through 15. David feels himself like a toddler who finds himself dropped off in the middle of a bustling city. Let's say Tokyo, because it's pretty bustling there, and the signs aren't in English. So it, it'd be hard for the toddler to find his way home uh, and navigate. You know, one writer, I, you might know him, Dr. Ross Reinman, said, I'm throwing it out there. What a beautiful grace to understand your own limited vision, to realize your complete ignorance when it comes to navigating your life through the vast unknown. That's a grace to admit that. That's the start of wisdom right there to say, I don't know it all. I can't see the future. I want this, but God, what do you want? Teach me your ways. Show me your idea for my life. Show me your ways, verse 4, uh, is really admitting that he doesn't know what to do, where to go, or how to proceed. And that's hard for a man to admit. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know much at all. That's the new living. I love that. And so a cry is, please reveal your will. And the verb there is yada in the Hebrew uh, to make known. Uh, so he's saying, may the all-knowing one make known only what he knows to someone who doesn't know. Light up the runway of my mind, Lord. Cause the fog to lift. Turn on the lights in my brain. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. They're higher than our ways, so we're going to need some revelation. If you're going to know what God wants you to do in every single uh, way and response and all of these ways, you're going to have to be uh, enlightened. He says, teach me your paths, verse 4. Uh, it goes a little deeper here. Don't just light up my mind, but ingrain your ways in my soul. So look at this. He's saying, as he says in Psalm 51 and verse 6, Lord, you teach me uh, in the inmost being, in the secret places of the heart. Uh, that's just beautiful. 
He's saying here, I desire your character, your nature, your priorities, your heart, your values, your character, your wisdom. I, I desire that to become second nature in me so that in every moment I will instinctively know WWJD. What will, would Jesus do? I, you know, I, I like this. My mind won't need to be shown to do what my heart already knows what's right. You see, teach it in my heart because I'm prone to wonder. And then he says, even so, verse 5, I still need you to guide me in your truth. Shepherd my steps so I don't walk off the cliff like everybody else in this world. So many people uh, just taking time-wasting detours away from God's good plan uh, for their hearts and lives. So easy to do. Uh, Aren't we all kind of have a little bit of fear and trembling about getting to heaven and hearing him say, well, I, I, you know, glad you're here. This is the plan I had for you. I don't know how that all works because we're not going to mope around heaven going, oh, I missed the plan. You know, that's <laughs> not going to happen. But uh, I don't know, is it loss of reward a little bit? Or I don't know. I mean, really, you know, um, there's a proverb that says, uh, since it's the Lord who ordains our footsteps, how can any man know his path? I mean, knowing the path is just something that we have to give some serious pause. Just slow down and seek and ask and wait until God uh, can answer, you see. So he says, guide me. You know, one writer said, enthusiasm uh, without engaging your brain is not good. And then a proverb, Proverb 19 and verse 2, he who's hasty with their feet misses the path. So we just have to understand, especially regarding matters of importance, to just make sure we are truly asking, because everybody in this room knows about uh, wanting to do something and a door opens and you're just like, it's, it's your thing. And not many of us really get too serious about asking God because we, we have our hearts set on it now. We don't want to hear a no. But I'd rather hear a no if it's not God's will than proceed with something that, you know, makes me all excited, but in the end turns out not to have been what the Lord had for me. Amen? Amen. It's hard. It is super hard. That's why he's crying out in four or five verbs, God, don't let me miss it. Because I'll wake up and I'll take charge because most of us already are in charge. And he has to really get our attention and get his hands on the reins. And so I just hear him saying, here, you take the reins. Show me how to go because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, Isaiah 30 and verse 21, one of my favorite verses, the prophecy, your own ears will hear the Lord speak. Behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go, whether to the right or to the left. So God wants to guide us all and to teach us and to show us the right way. We have to be in the posture of listening, not running ahead of him. So uh, verses 6 through 7, very interesting. And it sounds like he's digressing, but he's not. He, he, he says, Lord, I need you to give yourself a case of amnesia. 
uh, when it comes to my bad behavior. I want you to remember how good you are and forget how bad I am. Verses 6 and 7, especially when it comes to youthful folly of old. I think what's going on here and why he's asking for forgiveness when he's asking, hey, guide me, teach me, help me, illuminate my path. And then he's, he's, he's regretting his sinfulness and asking forgiveness. How are they related? I think it's a problem that dogs all of us. I think here he is, he's needing to be shown the path. What do I do now? I'm trapped. I'm in a dead end. I need your help. And he realizes that he, he's unworthy because he keeps messing up. And so he's feeling like, you've shown me the path and still I go down the wrong one. And you, you've revealed your wisdom and still I play the fool. And here I am again, stuck and needing to ask you the same thing again. So I just want to tell you, God, I'm looking to your mercy. I'm sorry that I haven't always stewarded the grace that you've given me and the responses and the answers to my prayers. You've come through and, and, and you've always helped me. You've been faithful, but I haven't always been faithful to you. And that's the idea here. And what's really trying uh, his soul is the sin from his younger days, which, you know, the world so easily will excuse you for if you're young. That's just the way the guys are. That's just the way, you know, you, it's your, your job description in your 20s is to do dumb things. You know, oh, not if you know the Lord and have the Holy Spirit living in your heart and life. That's not your job description. Your job description as a young person is to be an example for the rest of us. And to flee youthful lusts. The world may just say, well, you know, he's just being a 25-year-old. The Lord will say, not so. He belongs to me and should live that way. Now, what a lot of writers were saying is take a look that he's still saying, don't remember the sins of my youth. He's an old man now. It's still bothering him and he's still bringing it up. Why? Because he knows he's forgiven. But those things rob him of a sense of peace. He's got regret and remorse. That is regret and remorse. And he's saying, um, Lord, you forget about it and help me uh, to forget about it as well. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, young people, invest in a happier conscience in your golden years by abstaining from evil desires in your youth. So show me your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your path. Even though I fumble the ball, I rely on your goodness, love, and mercy. Okay, continuing on, 8 through 11. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And there it is again, kind of a pattern. So this one, if you're taking notes, number three, a, a prayer of praise and thankfulness that despite human shenanigans and sin and how David has misappropriated a lot of God's grace. God 
remains faithful to him. And he says, look at how good God is. He instructs sinners. He strives with sinners who keep on erring, who keep on messing up, who are a work in progress. They take two steps forward with him and three steps back, and still he's showing them the way. He's coming to their rescue. He's, he's helping them out of all of the jams they get themselves into. These sinners, good and upright, is the Lord. And so this just kind of dawns on him and it encourages him that uh, when we, to quote, the idea in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13, when we're faithless, God is faithful. And then it says something, I've explained it before, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot disown himself. In other words, when we're doing our thing, doing our three steps backwards, um, God cannot be anything other than Faithful because that's who he is. And it's not dependent, good and faithful isn't dependent on our behavior. Now, when we sin, there are going to be consequences, but God will be good and faithful to us if we belong to him. Even when we sin, he will make a move that is in our best interest to bring redemption. Yes, and it may be painful, but it will be a good and faithful thing to you. And this is what's blowing his mind. He says, that just proves it to me. Here's what he's saying. I can keep coming to you. I can keep asking you. And I can keep expecting to receive goodness and mercy even when I keep on messing up. That's an amazing thing. And then he says, here are some things that will help us to learn quicker and make an easier time of things. Uh, attributes that we can imitate here. He says, the humble, he guides in justice um, in, in right ways. And uh, the humble, he teaches his way. And so humility. When you're humble, you're more teachable. So he's saying, listen, if you want to be taught by the Lord, if you want God to show up and light your path, it's humility, man. Pride and thinking you got this, it's, uh, it's really the enemy of uh, hearing God speak to you. Uh, self-reliance, oh man, that's something we all struggle with. Um, it's amazing how you can remember things from a million years ago, uh, but I was walking with my nephew, uh, who's a grown man now and has children of his own, but he was five years old at the time. We were walking down a hill, and I just see it to this day. Uh, it had just rained. It was at my, uh, he was visiting me. I took him up to the dorms at uh, Bible College. We were walking down a pretty steep hill, and I kept putting my hand on it and kept pushing it away, kept pushing it away, you know, as an insult, you know, I'm five years old, what do you think, I'm three, you know, or <laughs> you know, and uh, so uh, you know how this goes, three steps later, right, but the face, his face went right into the mud, and, and I know, I picked him up, and as I'm picking him up, the Lord is like, uh, Justin, he's calling me. The Lord is talking to me, saying, Justin, you do this a lot, Ross, because I'm always putting my hand out there, and you're, and you're always going, what do you think? I'm a brand new Christian. You know, come on, or, or whatever. I got this. I can do this. 
You see, and a lot of times I'll be, you know, you know, how did this happen? He's like, hmm, well, I had my hand out there, you know, but uh, you wanted to do it yourself because you're a big boy now. You know, listen, you're never a big boy in God's kingdom ever. The day you think you arrive and put your big boy pants on, oh, man, he's going to teach you a lesson. Listen, he's our father. Up until our deathbed, we are his child, you see. So you know what I'm saying. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, James 4 and verse 6. And so, yeah, everybody says God helps those who help themselves. That is so not in the Bible. God helps those who can't help themselves and know they're smart enough to know that and humble enough to confess that. So he says, look, Lord, and that's why he's asking forgiveness again because he knows I'm a warrior. I'm a king. I can sing. I can write psalms, you know. I've got 600,000 fighting men. I counted them. That's it. And it got him in a lot of trouble. So he's saying, look, I know how I should be, but I'm not. So forgive me, God, and uh, forgive me for my pride and arrogance and self-reliance. Verse 11, that's what that's all about. A quick request for forgiveness for your sake because of who you are. I don't have a leg to stand on. But uh, please forgive me for that and show me your mercy. Once again, 12, 12 through 15. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses the good things he's got in store. Verse 13, he himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. These are all benefits of fearing the Lord. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Love that. And he will show them his covenant, his promise. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Okay, let's talk about that. Time to encourage himself in the Lord. David does that. He kind of steps back once in a while and talks to himself. Um, I don't know if you like to talk to yourself. I do, and I, I get caught doing it, and I just have to confess. I just talk to myself sometimes, you know. Someone's got to amuse me, <laughs> and uh, so... David is turned to third person. He does this. You think I'm kidding? Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you so depressed? Why so disturbed within me, soul? Put your hope in God, David, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He's talking to himself there. You see, he likes to encourage himself in the Lord. So what, what is he doing here? Verse 12. He, he's saying out loud something that he knows is going to go in the mouths of the worshipers who come to worship and sing his songs. He wants them to reflect. Who is it that fears the Lord? First of all, fearing the Lord. Another person asked me this in an email. What is it to fear the Lord? We're not supposed to be afraid of God, are we? No, not as if God is going to be out there going to hurt you kind of fear, but this, as we've talked about many times, this reverent fear for the one who, the maker of heaven and earth, the one through whom all things have been created and by whom all things are held together by his power, the judge of all the earth who determines where everybody spends eternity. This 
is a being who deserves some healthy awe and reverence. And that's what he's talking about. So the benefits, he's just saying, David's putting out the question, so who is it who fears the Lord? Uh, Do I fear the Lord? He's asking himself. And now he's put it in their mouths singing. And so we all have to think, well, who is it? Do I? Do I fear the Lord? And here are some of the benefits. Number one, revere him, verse 12, and he will teach you the path of life. And and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His son, so wise, uh, said that. Why is to fear the Lord and to be in awe of him and his word the very start of knowledge? Well, because you can be really smart. You can be off the chart genius neurosurgeon or a brilliant engineer but get an F in something called life because you don't know the author of life you see so having a reverence for God and a respect for God's word well now that's the start of uh, being able to have a sense of what's right and wrong and wisdom to live your life so Uh, reverence for God verse 13 will make you prosperous he will dwell in prosperity verse 13 there it means to enjoy the favor of God no matter what your circumstances are to dwell in in prosperity as we've mentioned before has nothing to do with square footage of your home your income or the kind of job you have or what kind of health you're in zero it can include that Uh, But when the Bible says to prosper you, I know the plan, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to to prosper you. The word means to enjoy the favor of God, to be right with God, to be headed to heaven, to have your sins washed away, to have the joy of the Lord, to have the peace of Christ, to have effective ministry, to have purpose and meaning in your life, to have contentment, to have rich relationships and friendships, a clean conscience, intimacy with God, answered prayer. This is prosperous. (laughs) And this is what God means. And if you fear him, You're going to get all of the things I mentioned, plus a hundred other things. Number three, fear of the Lord in our lives not only prospers us, but sets up future generations who fear the Lord. If they fear the Lord, like mom and dad did, or their spiritual uh, leaders did, they will have the same benefits of having a good standing when the kingdom of God comes. He says, our descendants will inherit the earth. If you fear the Lord and they fear the Lord, having, verse 13, having descendants that inherit the earth is code for uh, being in good standing at the second coming. That's what that means. So 1 John and 5 would be the New Testament correlation. Um, Overcoming the world is what people who are born of the spirit do we overcome the world uh, we reign and rule with christ and so uh, if we fear the lord all things being equal it helps our biological children and our spill our spiritual children uh, to imitate our lives and enjoy those blessings and prevail in life because they fear the lord the way we fear the lord now 
as we read David's life, it doesn't appear that all of his sons feared the Lord. It seems like many of them did not and will not be inheriting the earth, but inheriting under the earth. And so the Bible's promises like that, like, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your family. You and your family believe on the Lord and you shall be saved, you and your family. The you and your family gets pressed all the time. See, it just means you and all your family members. No, raise up a child in the way he should go and in the end he won't depart. All things being equal, the general principle is when you train somebody up, when they're, you know, before the jello is set or the concrete is hard, it's very hard for them to live a life outside of the Lord. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible. So that's what this verse is. It's not just one of those verses you can say, see, you know, all my kids, you know, well, it's certainly possible. And who knows, maybe Absalom, his son, who wanted to kill his father and almost did it, but got caught with his big head, Vigo, got caught in a tree branch and he was left dangling by that hair he loved to flip around. (laughs) And he's hanging from a tree by his fat head, having chased his father out of Jerusalem at knife point and stirred up the entire kingdom to kill his father. And he got cut down with a sword from the tree. So not all biological children are promised the biological children who revere the Lord. Amen. That's kind of sad. It would be kind of nice to be able to say, you know, just press some of these things and and uh, see some wonderful things happen, but, you know, such is life. So moving on here, uh, I like uh, the fear of the Lord grants us privileged uh, information. He calls it verse 14. The secrets are uh, secrets of the Lord are with those who fear him. He shows them his covenant and his plan. Uh, Jesus said something similar at the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper, John 15. He says, no longer do I call you guys servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all the, all, listen to this, for everything I've heard from my father, I've told you. The secrets that are only known to God, God gave only to those who fear him and revere his word. Can you imagine what you know? That your friend who doesn't revere God's word or the Lord knows? Oh my goodness. You know how the world got started, how it was created? Very smart people just say, well, there's this big explosion. Very smart people think that. They don't have the secret knowledge. They don't know. So they think, well, maybe there was just this big thing that exploded and life came from non-life. No, you know something that very smart people don't know. The secret of how everything went wrong, the origin of sin and evil, the secret of God's plan to remedy the situation, 
the secret of who the Savior is, the secret of how to be saved and have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God and live forever, the secret of eternal life, the secret of the purpose of life, the secret of what happens when you die, the secrets of heaven, the secrets of what hell is like, and who goes where. We've got a lot of knowledge that only God knows it's secret, and he gives it to us because we revere him. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he shows them his covenant. Oh, I love this, because it's not just that we know what's coming down, but he's included us. He's made a promise to us that we will be a part of it, and he will keep us safe for that, so that he shows us his promise and, uh, you know, we are promised a place. He will pluck my feet from the net. Uh, a lot of pitfalls in this life on the, on the way, on our way to the promised land. And he says, well, I'm going to make it there uh, because uh, he will save me from every evil attack. Uh, let's finish up. There are two slides here. We'll read through them both and then we'll be done. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, God, for I'm desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. I've had one problem. Now they're, just, they're not going away. They're getting more and more problems. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my affliction and my pain. Forgive all my sins. There it is again. Uh, consider my enemies, for they're many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Finishing up now. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of their troubles. Let's go back one slide and just walk through this really quickly. And so he circles back, um, you know, to talk about deliverance uh, at the close of his prayer. And very human thing to do, and it encourages me. You know, he's saying, Look, Lord, I, I know and I love the truth about all of your glorious promises that I've just been through. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings are all, all mine with 10,000 besides. I, I, I love that. However, I can't think straight right now. I can't even finish this prayer without my heart racing back. Oh, goodness, I've got this guy out there that hates me. And he's trying to do me in. Verse 19, it's not just one guy, Lord. It's many guys. And my problems aren't going away, Lord. My problems are just getting worse. Verse 17 and verse 19. And he says, Lord, it's not just regular run-of-the-mill hate. It's cruel hate. There are people out there that just want me to suffer. There's no civility, no... Uh, mercy. There's no streak of mercy. There's no soft spot. They're just cruel. Now, I read just recently about a woman who was at gunpoint and uh, she said, I'm a grandma. And he shot her. I'm a grandma. Boom. These are the kinds of people that David is saying, God, it's a cold cruel world out there and there are people with not a lot of mercy and they want to see my downfall 
So he says, turn your attention full to me. Like he grabs his face and he's pulling it, you know. Look over here, look at this. And so a couple things I want to close out with if you're feeling ever, you know, uh, stressed out like David. Number one, be honest with your emotions about how you feel since he already knows uh, how you feel anyway. He says, I'm desolate. It means to be cut off isolated, all alone. This problem has has taken me out of the mainstream of my life that I enjoy and my friendships and my regular routines, but I'm all cut off from life. And I'm in this dark little corner by myself trying to deal with this madness. Oh my goodness, I'm afflicted. It means poor and weak without strength. I'm humiliated, beat up and bullied. He's saying, dad, There are these bullies. They're beating on me. I need your help. I mean, you can fill in the blank here. I can just, you know, whatever threats that you can think of. Listen, they've gone to HR and they're lying about me. Or they're filing false charges. Oh, we've got some employers here. They're filing false charges. They've gone to the authorities. Uh, They've hacked my email. They're spreading rumors. They're ruining my relationships and my friendships. They're turning people against me. They're sabotaging my life. It's so sad. And it's the most painful thing in the world. Of all the trials and tribulations, the most difficult thing of all is to be hated by somebody. To be hated by a former friend or a family member that makes it all worse. And David's had it all from the family, from the table, from his administration to his friends. He even included it in a psalm. He said, my best friend, the friend I used to go to church with and worship together with has raised his heel against me, you see. Which, of course, doubled as a prophecy about Judas. You see. So he says, uh, bring me out of this. Have mercy on me. Get me through this. And then forgive all my sins. Why? Because perhaps you're letting this happen to chastise me because of my sins. So he's just saying, you know, it's always good. When you're under the gun, it is always smart to start confessing sins because you don't know. I mean, is this happening? I always do this, and I always think that it's because I did something wrong. Whenever you feel pain, you're just, it's quick to just start you thinking about your life. How am I living? Is everything okay here? You know? And so he's just checking in. Forgive all of my sins. If this is chastisement, if I've contributed to the reason they hate me, please forgive me. And then this last thought, I love it the most, verse 21, he says, here's what I'm concerned about in all of this. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Oh my goodness. Do you know what he's saying there? God, please don't let me become like them because I don't want to become an evildoer. He will say um, to his men who wanted him to kill Saul, 
from evil hearts, from evil doers come evil deeds. No, I will not lift up my hand and strike this madman king. They said, God has given you opportunity. He came into the cave. His back was turned. Now go take him out. And he said, no, God, may integrity keep me. I don't want to become like that madman. And you know what? When people hate you and they're destroying your reputation and lying about you, you could go crazy. You could just lose it and become exactly like them. And he ends his prayer saying, oh, I'm not like them. And I'm not going to let their behavior harden my heart. I'm not going to let them rob the sweetness and the joy of walking with you, forgiving them, loving them, blessing those who persecute me. When we are cursed, Paul says, we bless. When they revile us, we do not revile back. And this is what his prayer is. Uh, I really like that. So I want my takeaway is this. Uh, many times over the course of David's life, it looked this way. Touch and go, like the bad guys had the upper hand, and like, uh, you know, all hope was lost. It looked that way, but it never was. And uh, in fact, if only David could have read the summary of his life in the book of Chronicles... He would have realized that every threat was irrelevant and God would remain faithful and he would never be put to shame. He was never put to shame. He always prevailed up until his dying breath. And so there were painful times. Sure, there were scary moments. Yes, but God always came through for the win. I want to read uh, 1 Chronicles 18 without any comment and just show you the summary of David's life. Mark Twain said, he said, I'm an old man and I have known a great many troubles, most of which never happened. (laughs) I love that one. King David, God, they're going to kill me. Where are you? I'm isolated. I'm all by myself. They're making stuff up. They're ruining my life. They're going to win. Well, here's how your life turned out, David. First Chronicles 18. After this, David defeated and subdued the Philistines by conquering Gath and its surrounding towns. David also conquered the land of Moab and the Moabites who were spared because David's subjects and who were spared became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. David also destroyed the forces of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, when Hadadezer marched out out to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand chariots, 7,000 charioteers, 20,000 foot soldiers. He disabled all the chariot horses except enough for a hundred chariots. When the Arameans from Damascus arrived to help King Hadad Ezer, 
David killed 22,000 of them. Then he placed several army garrisons in Damascus and Aramean, the Aramean capital. And the Arameans became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. So the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So the Lord made David victorious wherever he went in his life. This is a sum up of his life. David brought the gold shields of Hadad Ezers. Can't they just have Smith? What's wrong with Smith? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Smith's officers to Jerusalem, along with a large amount of bronze from Mr. Smith's towns and Teba and Kuhn. Later, Solomon melted the bronze and molded it into the great bronze basin called the sea, the pillars, and the various bronze articles used at the temple. Almost done. When King Toy of Hamath heard that David had destroyed the entire army of King Hadar-Ezar of Zobah, he sent his son Joram to congratulate King David for a successful campaign. Hadad-Ezer and Toy had been enemies and were often at war. Joram presented David with many gifts of gold, silver, and bronze. King David dedicated all these gifts to the Lord, along with the silver and gold he had taken from other nations, from Edom, Moab, Amnon, Ammon, uh, Philistia, and Amalek. Abishai, son of Zeru, Mrs. Smith, (laughs) destroyed 18,000 Edomites in the valley of Salt. He placed army garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's subjects. In fact, the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. This is the summation of David's life. David's enemies didn't have a chance, and neither do yours. They really don't. And the Lord, the same thing. The Lord says to King David, and you know, I almost just felt something back from you saying, well, no. I just felt a resistance like, no, I'm different. This situation, Pastor Rush, you don't know about this time. This is the one exception in the Bible right here. No, 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 no. Your enemies are not as powerful as you may think. Whatever God allows, God is going to use for his glory. And at the end of your life, you will look back and you will see that God was faithful to you the whole time. Let's pray. Oh Lord, quite a lot to think about tonight. We pray that you bless us with these deep and profound concepts and truths that set our hearts free, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that... uh, There is no plan, counsel, or strategy that can prevail against you or your people. Not even the gates of the power of death itself and hell will not prevail against the church, and that's who we are. We thank you, God, for the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.